Well, as you all know, this is our last gathering here in this building. And we've been here for, uh, for about three years, a little over three years. And uh, God has a wonderful, glorious future for us. And he is in the process of showing us what that is. But I promise you, it's going to be great. Not good, great. And you know, uh, it's, uh, it's funny. I've had in my mind for the last at least two years of doing a study in Corinthians because it's pretty much the last book of any size that Paul wrote that we haven't studied yet. And I don't know why I put it off for so long. I always knew we would do it eventually. And I remember talking to one of the elders about two years ago how I just was in 2 Corinthians. I just kept going over and over it. And I said, someday we'll do this. And um, I knew we had to do Ezra and Nehemiah first. But if I had planned to do Corinthians at the right time, I could not have picked a more perfect day to begin it. It just shows how brilliant God is. Not me, but God and his timing. And uh, so as I began to study 1 Corinthians this past week, I was like, my jaw was dropping. And maybe yours will too. You know, when I uh, think of certain books in the, uh, in the, the Greek scriptures, uh, each one seems to have its own kind of feel to it. I've told you before that when I study Ephesians, I feel like a mountain climber going up Mount Everest. And when you get to the peak, you can just see everything. That's what Ephesians is like. It's been called the Alps of the New Testament. And uh, when I study Hebrews, I feel like, like I'm studying in a laboratory. Uh, just breaking things down, digging down to the very essence and the building blocks, the DNA of God. When I come to Corinthians, I feel like I'm at the circus. I'm serious. It's got a little bit of everything. It is a wild ride filled with all kinds of things, filled with upheaval, filled with divisions, filled with all kinds of things coming together and clashing, kind of like the world today. As we were praying at the the gates of prayer early this morning uh, at 9, it's just, I I was just... um, really seeing this upheaval we're in. I don't know of a better word for that. And so we have this illness. You know, here we're we're masked up once again and sitting apart. Some of our members are now ill. Some are recovering, and I'm sure others will probably get ill. And uh, so we're, we're closing down. We're going to be going back into homes. I thought we're kind of reliable like schools, churches, businesses, elections. But nothing's reliable anymore. You just can't depend on it. And uh, when you look in the world, all over the world, everything is just turning upside down. It's like seas went from fairly peaceful to just doing this. But we are on the rock, right? And if you're not... I certainly hope you'll be encouraged to found your life on the rock. But the rock is invisible. The rock is spiritual. The rock is not of this world. And you must find the rock and stand upon it through faith and through really getting on your knees and spending time in God's presence. And as we get ready to open 1 Corinthians 
you know we're going to be going back into the home. And we're going to be observing Sabbath there. So maybe a little review is in order. How do we do this? And what is the Sabbath? I went back to Exodus 20, where the commandment to observe the Sabbath is first found. And you'll find that the, the commandment to observe the Sabbath has four main components to it. And they're all physical components. And I got this picture of a, a picture frame in my mind. So Exodus 20, verse 8 says, guard the Sabbath day. Guard the Sabbath. Your translations may say remember, but it's not the word zakhar, remember. It's the word shamar, guard. So we are to guard the Sabbath. That's one side of the frame. Guard the Sabbath. So we'll make that the top member of the frame. And then it says, keep it holy. Set it apart is what it means. And that is the entire purpose of a picture frame, isn't it? Keep it holy, keep it set apart. In other words, what's out of the frame is just the wall. But inside the frame is saying, this is special. This is not part of the wall. This is something different, something unique. Bring your attention to this. And the frame is there to focus your attention on what is inside the frame. And then it says, six days you shall work. Six days of work. Now, we know we're supposed to rest on the Shabbat, but if you rest all seven days, what makes the Sabbath so special? If you want to make the Sabbath special, work the other six days. Six days of work. That's one member of the frame. If you don't work six days, then the seventh day of rest is just another day of rest. And then it says, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Adonai, your God. So the seventh day, the Sabbath, is a day of rest. Now, I want you to notice something particular about all four of these things. Guarding the Sabbath, setting it apart, making sure nothing interferes, nothing else gets in the frame. You work for six days and you rest on the seventh. All of these are physical activities. They're all physical the Sabbath is not. Just like the frame is physical and it surrounds the picture, but it is not part of the picture. These four things simply provide the framework, literally, in which you observe the Sabbath. So my question to you, and I, I invite your answers, what is being pictured here? Don't just say the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath are these four things you do to protect it. But what goes in? What is the Sabbath? What is the thing that goes in the frame? Any ideas? By the way, I just want to tell you what a smart woman I'm married to, even though she married me. I asked her this question last night, and she got it right the first time. So I'm expecting, I have high expectations of you. Deborah, what do you say goes in the frame? Spending time with God. Should we do that every day? But this is a special day. This is, yeah, okay. But that's exactly right. That's correct. Brandon, what else? Ah, I like that. Brandon says, ourselves. Can't you have a selfish day on a Monday or a Sunday or take off on Wednesday and have a day just for yourself? Be right. I want to work out a little bit more here. Let me help you out a little bit. Your house catches, it's so sad. We were driving here this morning as we always take the same route. 
as they're going by one of the houses we pass every week, one half of it had burned down. I don't know what day it happened. We were just like, oh, that house had just sold, and the whole garage and half the living area was just, it, the whole roof caved in, just blackened, nothing. We just felt so, so bad. But uh, your house catches fire. And so you can just take a few things with you. And I've heard people say the thing I would grab first would be our family album, our pictures. Let's say there's a picture on the wall. Which picture on the wall would you take? Go ahead and say it. You'd all take the same one. What would it be? The family picture. The family the grandparents who've passed away, the grandchildren who are just young, just born, you'd get the family picture. Would you be in that picture? Absolutely. Your family would be in that picture. And God would be in that picture if it's the one in this frame. So your answers are, are correct. But I want you to think of the Sabbath as being a family photo of you, the people in your home, the people who may join you in your home, and God. But unlike other family portraits, you're all standing here looking at the camera. You're sitting around a banquet table facing one another with God at the head of the table. A time of fellowship and joy and celebration with him. That is what your Sabbath should be. And without a time of prayer where you're talking to God and a time of reflection where you're listening to him and a time of study where he is conversing with you and teaching you things without food and without rest, you really don't have a very great family celebration. You have to have all these components, but you must build a framework around it. You must guard it so nothing interferes with this 24-hour period. You must set it apart from everything else. You must make sure you're working the other six days so you're looking forward to this special time with family, with God. And you rest in it. You stop your striving. And uh, as we begin to gather in homes next week, next Shabbat, I want you to remember this picture. One of the things I hear us say, and I say it too, and I'm going to stop saying it. You'll never hear me say it again. And that is, I'm going to Shabbat. Don't we all say that? You're going to Shabbat this week? Yes, I'm going to Shabbat last week. I went to Shabbat last week. I look forward to going. We don't go to Shabbat. Shabbat's not a place. Shabbat is the sanctuary in time. It starts at sundown Friday night. It ends at sundown Saturday night. And when the sun goes down, it is over. The fragrance of it you can take with you into the week. The memory of it and the anticipation of the next one you carry with you. But Shabbat's not a place you go. It's a time that God commands us to observe where he says, I'm going to meet with you. If you'll meet with me, I'm available. I want to sit and reason with you and talk with you and spend time with you and you with me and with your whole family. And there's sleep during that 24 period of time and rest. There's eating. There's fellowship with family. There's prayer and conversation with God. And he speaks. And we'll guard it and put a frame around it so nothing else gets in. And what's in here is not going to leak out. It stays here. You set it apart. Make it special. It will be the most incredible 24 hours of your week. Guaranteed. Guaranteed.
God made it for you. God made the Sabbath for man. And the Lord of the Sabbath is in the picture frame waiting for you to come. Can you look at the Sabbath that way? It's not a place, it's not a building. It's a time of family with God. If there wasn't this, oh, this hateful disease going around, I would encourage you and insist that you all have at least someone or two or three outside your family join you on Shabbat. But with the disease around, it's like I can't really tell you to do that, to encourage you to do that. But if you could, and if people are listening in a part of the world where COVID's not a big deal, have someone in your home with you because the moment you have someone join you for Shabbat, the dynamics change. They just change. So I know what it's like, true confessions, when we're not gathering here and it's just Robin and me and Lindsay will come over. Then it's like, you know, you just stay in your PJs with a cup of coffee and you watch the video and just like, you know. But the moment someone else comes over, one of you come over to my house, it's like, oh, I got to get dressed. <laughs> we have to put out some, some dishes. We need to have something nice. But that's good. Being with other people makes you up your game. It changes the dynamics. And now I have someone I don't know as well as my wife and daughter to share with, to talk to, to find out what their needs are. Pray for them and they can pray for us. We share insights in the word and everything just blossoms because of that. So ideally, when you have a Sabbath at home, you have others in with you or you go to be with them and not just yourselves. But again, I'm not encouraging you to do that until this COVID mess clears up. But we have this promise. Yeshua said over in Matthew 18, 20, he said, for where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there. I'm with them. You gather together, especially on the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath will show up. And when you pray together on Shabbat, here's something I recommend. You all have siddurs. You're, you're welcome to take these home with you. They're yours. And none of you are maybe cantors. You don't have to go through all the prayers. But here's something you can do for prayer. I think you're going to love this. You take a section. One of you suggest one of the prayers in here. Might be part of the Amidah or one of the, uh, the prayers leading up to that. You take that one prayer. You all pray it together. And once you finish that one prayer, you stop and then discuss it. What stood out to you? Each of you share the thing that's outstanding to you, the thing you think about, whatever it is. You take time to share, just a few minutes. Then after everyone shared, you go back and bow your head and pray the prayer a second time. Now with all the richness of what each of you have brought to it. And if you have time to do that with a couple, do it with a couple of the prayers. You can take the liturgy, and this is an opportunity to make it blossom and live. Because each of us, when we pray the liturgical prayers, I know different and unique things come to mind. So it's a, a wonderful opportunity while you're together in a, as a family or a small group in your home to really make the liturgy yours and let God speak to you through it as you speak to him. Some people think, well, if we're going to be in the homes for a while, it's just going to be boring and dull and everything else, and it's just like, will this day ever end? I can't wait to get back with my group. And I was reminded of a, of a, 
a quote from G.K. Chesterton, brilliant guy. He says, there are people who pray for eternal life and don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday. They want to live forever. But they don't know what to do with the time they've got here. Think about that. Oh, this day ever end? Well, don't you want eternal life that never ends? I have a saying I used to use in my students at school all the time. If you are bored, you're a boring person. Only boring people get bored. I am not a boring person, though I may have bored you at times. Because I'm the guy, remember, who can drive along and entertain myself by replacing the word love with the word cheese and love songs, right? So don't be boring, and you'll never be bored. You have a mind, and you have God sitting in the driver's seat next to you, on the couch next to you. Spend time talking to him. Let him speak to you. You have people in your home you think you know, but maybe you don't know that well because you've never talked about real things. There is so much to do, so much to occupy our Sabbath. There's no reason why it should ever be boring, none at all. So with that, I, I look forward to hearing from you the experiences you have on the Sabbath, however many there are over the next weeks while we get through this this um, health crisis that we're in. So, if we want to begin our study of of, um, Corinthians, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you just a couple paragraphs from a book that I'm really enjoying. I haven't sat down just to read through it, but I open it up every once in a while and it will read a section. It's called The New Testament in Its World. It's by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, I think he's Scottish. He has this wonderful accent when you hear him speak. And there it is, the New Testament in this world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. Now, N.T. Wright is not messianic, so he uses a lot of church terms, which is fine. But uh, he really gets it. He really understands the workings of the first century church, ecclesia, community, assembly, whatever word you want to use. And a uh, brilliant guy, but he's very refreshing and even uses a bit of humor when he writes. And though this book is just a few pages shy of a thousand pages long, it's lavishly illustrated in color and uh, it is not boring to read. But since none of you are boring people, you would not be bored by it anyway. And uh, it's, it's just one of those that if you've got... Uh, a few extra dollars to spend on a book to add to your library. This is a great one. He also has DVDs and a workbook that goes with it if you really want to go 100%. Let me just read you some of his introduction to 1 Corinthians. If there was one church that caused Paul to pull his hair out and made him age before his time, it was probably the Church of God in Corinth. Paul spent an initial 18 months with the believers there, establishing their community. He made at least two further visits to Corinth, the first of which did not go well. He wrote, it seems, four letters to the Corinthians, two of which we have in our New Testament, all of them dealing with problems in the church. 
Paul's co-workers, Timothy, Titus, and the more independent Apollos, also visited them, often relaying to Paul news of a deteriorating situation. The problems were numerous. Now, here are the four main ones. Deep divisions, sexual immoralities, suspicions about Paul and his motives, and visits of people Paul calls super-apostles touting their own credentials and belittling Paul. This church experienced social, spiritual, and sexual problems pitting members against one another and the congregation against Paul. And yet we see here the heart of Paul. And let me skip on to a, uh, two more paragraphs beyond that. The Corinthian letters are a prime example of the huge historical and cultural distance between ourselves and the early church. The world of these letters is foreign to us in its geography, language, social relationships, economics, and religious contexts. And now I asked you in the Thursday update to kind of page through 1st and 2nd Corinthians and make a list of all the issues. I I didn't word the question very well. I wish I could go back and reword it. But I wanted you to list all the kinds of topics and things that were going on. Because like I said, this 1st and 2nd Corinthians is a three-ring circus with all the things going on that Paul had to address. Here's the list N.T. Wright gives us. Paul deals with many things, including the prizing of rhetorical ability, the love of wisdom, Roman legal proceedings, prostitution practices, ancient um, views of marriage, celibacy, meat markets, social and ecclesial factions, pagan temples, head coverings, ecstatic utterances, baptisms for the dead, Greek anthropology, and visions of a third heaven. Some of these have semi-parallels in our world, but even there, the radically different context changes everything. Paul faced, in addition, get this, the challenge of organizing the collection that he had planned for the Jerusalem church. Jerusalem is going through a difficult time, and they needed food, and they needed help. So he's in Corinth trying to raise money to send to Jerusalem, right? But listen to this. While simultaneously having to respond to news that certain Jewish Christians had arrived in Corinth from Jerusalem and were trying to tarnish his reputation. The people that he's trying to help, their people come from there attacking him. It takes a continuous effort for us to think our way back into life in Corinth and to grasp just how remarkable was Paul's response to the many different elements of the situation. Three ring circus. So there's the list. You can, all these notes will be on the internet tomorrow. But these are the four main problems. Deep divisions, sexual immoralities, Suspicions about Paul and his motives. Visits by false super apostles telling you don't listen to Paul. (laughs) What a train wreck. Now, where was Corinth? Let's get our our bearings. Here's a map of uh, Greece. That's what's in the the main part of the image. You, You know, Italy is shaped like a boot, right? So this is the heel of that boot. It continues on. But there's the heel. So this is Italy over here. And Corinth is on this island. This area, the southern area of Greece is called Achaia. And so there's Corinth right down here. 
Athens is right across the way. Macedonia is this area up at the top and on further north of the map, and we'll be encountering that word Macedonia. So it just kind of gives you an idea of, of how things are laid out. So to begin our study of 1 Corinthians, we actually have to go back to the book of Acts. So open your Bibles with me. Go to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, because this is where we first learn about Paul arriving in Corinth for the first time and how things got started. Acts chapter 18. Verse 1. After these things, he, that's Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, he was the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. I'm so glad that Acts gives us that detail, that Paul, we think of him as being a rabbi, which he certainly was, a rabbi and a teacher, but he also had a skill. And whenever young men tell me they want to go into the ministry, I always encourage them, get a skill first. Get a skill where you don't have to rely on the ministry for your livelihood. I think that is just good, sound advice. Also, learning how to work 40 hours a week and maybe a job you don't care much about. It's good training, good discipline for life. So learn how to do something. But would you ever guess Paul being a tent maker? I want you to think about something. I've talked about this before. It's been quite a time. I want to remind you of something. What we find in the scriptures is God takes the job that somebody has, the thing that drives them, the thing they do, that this is who I am, this is what I'm good at, and God uses that to train them for spiritual work. For example, David was a what? A shepherd. He's out in the fields with sheep. And I'm sure that sometimes it was uh, an easy day, and other times the sheep bit him or kicked at him or butted him, but he loved the sheep. He learned how to, to take care of the sheep, protect the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep. But did God have the job of shepherd as a permanent career for David? No. And yes. God wanted to continue being a shepherd. But he wanted to take all those lessons he learned among the flocks and apply it to shepherding people. Same with Moses. He was trained as a shepherd. Take the disciples. Most of them were what? Fishermen. And when Yeshua sees some of them, he doesn't say, okay, you're not fishermen anymore. He didn't say that. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishermen. You'll continue fishing. You'll take all the skills you learned about fishing, but you're going to become fishing, start fishing for something that really matters for eternity. You become fishers of men. You're going to have to launch out from the crowd, distance yourself from the crowd. You'll have to work at night. And you're going to take the net, the net which is your life, and you're going to throw it out there for people. And you're going to see what swims in and who are impacted by your life. And the day is coming when those nets, when your life is going to be called back home. And then you're going to see what it accomplished. 
fishermen. Think of other tradesmen. Bezalel, he was a craftsman, worked with his hands. And then when God gave Moses an image of the tabernacle, he goes to Bezalel. And now he's making a house for God. How about Yeshua? He was a stonemason. I know our English translations say carpenter, but that's not the right translation. He was a stonemason. He probably worked with wood too, but he knew how to take rocks and cut them and patiently shape them and put them in the right place to build edifices and homes. And then when he leaves, he says that he's going away to build a a mansion, build a place for his bride. And then over in Peter, we're called living stones. And we see the new Jerusalem is the bride. It's this edifice that Messiah has made. Each of us is like a rock that he shapes and places and puts right in the right place. And, uh, but he's also a good shepherd, isn't he? And so here we see Paul, a tent maker. So what did he do after God apprehended his life? He continued to make tents. These portable dwelling places for God's spirit and for people. He went around starting all these little congregations, these tents. Amazing, isn't it? So you have to ask yourself, what is it you love to do? What's the thing you're wired to do? Then ask yourself, God, how do I take the lessons of what I've learned doing this and then use it to do something spiritual, something eternal for your kingdom? Because whatever career you're in, that's your training ground. You know, with me... I love just to see how things work. <laughs> when I got something, a new toy or whatever, job number one is to take it apart. It's the way it was. Then put it back together. Take it apart, put it together. And uh, I've told you before that, you know, I thought about going into music. I thought about going into literature. You know, be, I wanted to be a teacher. I knew that. From third grade, I knew that. But what do I teach? Brian was a math teacher. I wanted to do that, but I didn't want to copy Brian. And... Uh, and I remember sitting in my junior year of high school, Miss Louise Nolt's class, and it was boring. And I remember looking at the brass doorknob on the door. It's a very old building. I look at the doorknob on the door, thinking, how did they make that brass doorknob round and hollow? And I saw pipes coming down the corner of the room. It was a really old building, these pipes. How do you make a pipe hollow? Do they drill out the middle? Do they take a piece of metal and, and shape it around and then weld it? How do they do that? And I would just look at the world around me and wonder, how do they make that? I had no idea. I'd never operated a piece of woodworking equipment or metalworking equipment or anything. But I knew that down in the other part of the school, there was a wood shop and a metal shop, and those guys seemed to have a great time down there. And I'd see some of the things they bring out and think, that's incredible. So I decided I want to be a shop teacher. I want to know how things work. And I loved it. But when I really began to discover the word of God, I wanted to take it apart and put it together. I wanted to know what was under the hood. How does this work? How do these things connect? How do they function? And that's always been my MO. And the lessons I learned as an industrial arts teacher have all applied right over to the scriptures. This is what God does. So you need to answer the question about 
What is the thing God wants you to use your skills for? The things that drive you, the things you're good at. Those are his gift to you, but he wants them to blossom and become something not just physical, but have an impact for eternity on the lives of people. Okay? Now, some of you, I can see the wheels turning. You're not going to listen to another word I say the rest of the day because your mind's engaged on this. That's okay. That's worth it. But anyways, he's a tent maker. Verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue. So every town in, in, in Greece had a synagogue. He goes to the synagogue, always the first place he went. Every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he had Gentiles going to synagogue, always did. The Greeks especially were very curious about religion and philosophy. And so they would go to the synagogue to learn. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, the logos, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Yeshua was the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he took out his garments, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. I've done my job. I try to reach you. But now on, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius or Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. <laughs> Can you imagine the fireworks going on now? The synagogue has basically booted Paul out. And so he goes into a home fellowship right next door. Has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Crispus, the leader, a president of the synagogue, he was the Roger Cash of the Corinthian synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being immersed, being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, 18 months, year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. So he went out of the synagogue and into the home. In fact, Paul, he, you know, I know we're going into the home next week. We don't know how for how long, but this is not unusual. It's how Beth Takun started. It's how every one of the churches in Asia Minor that Paul went to, every city, how they started. For, let me give you a few examples. Later in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, it says, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you, or Priscus greet you heartily, and the Lord with the church that is in their house. Romans 16, verse 5, it says, Also greet the church that is in their house, that is Prisca and Aquila. Philemon 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a prisoner of Messiah, Yeshua, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Colossians 4, 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. There were no church buildings. Where did they meet? Homes. That's where it all started. For us, it's where we have to go back, at least for a while. And so we shouldn't feel like that is foreign. Let's make the most of it, because that's the seedbed where things grow and real things take place. Now that word church, 
is problematic. I want to go through a little thing about religious jargon, but there's not one word that is more difficult to deal with than this word. I'm not crazy about this word. Now, what it represents in the scriptures, I'm all over that. Don't get me wrong. It's this word C-H-U-R-C-H that is really a problem. Because whoever you talk to and you use the word church, it means something different. And for us to communicate effectively, you and I have to agree on what a word means. Church is not one of those words that means the same thing. If I mention the word rock, we can all picture a rock. If I say elephant, we can all picture an elephant. If I say the word church, all bets are off. For some people, when they hear the word church, they think of a building. Just like we should not say, I'm going to Shabbat, you should not say, I'm going to church. You can't go to church. You are the church. So instead of saying, I'm going to church, you would say, the church is going into the building. The church has left the building. You understand? You can't go to church. You are the church. Some people, when they hear this word, they think of a particular denomination. For example, if you're Roman Catholic, you believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the church. And if you're not Roman Catholic, you're not really part of the church. They're getting a little more lenient about that, but others are not. And there are other denominations. If you're not part of their denomination, you are not part of their church. Some people think of the church as being Christians. If you're a Christian, you are a part of the church. Now, that is true. If you're really a Christian, you're part of the church. But they limit it just to those who've prayed the prayer, those who know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. The problem with that is the English word church comes from a Hebrew word kahal and a Greek word ekklesia, which mean exactly the same thing. And believe it or not, the word kahal is found for the first time in this week's Torah portion, in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 28, verse 3. It's where Jacob goes into his father the second time, and uh, Jacob blesses him and says, May God make you into a kahal of nations, of peoples, a congregation, a church of peoples. And in fact, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because when you go over to Acts 7.38, it's talking about Moses. And in Acts 7.38, he says, this is the one, Moses, who was in the church, the ecclesia, in the wilderness. So the writer of Acts, he saw that the people in the wilderness who were following God through the wilderness into the promised land, that was the ecclesia. Because the church did not begin in Matthew, it began in Genesis. And when you read the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, it doesn't start with the disciples. It starts way back with Cain and Abel. Church has a long, long history. The word church is found more often in the Hebrew scriptures than in the New Testament scriptures. About 260 times, in fact. And church doesn't always mean a group of good people. In Acts 19.32, it talks about a riot starting, and it refers to the mob as an ecclesia. 
It's because they're all gathered together. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the ecclesia was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. So they're there getting ready to, to kill some of the apostles. But they're still called an ecclesia. You see, the word ecclesia, the word kahal, is not a religious term. It means a group of people who come together for a particular purpose. Now, if we can all agree that that and that alone is what the word church means, I'm perfectly fine with the word church. But does it mean that to everybody? For some people, a church is a Sunday activity. Just a Sunday activity. It's Sunday. This is what we do. And without a sermon and songs, there's no church. But if you have sermon and songs, you've had church. So to them, church, something you do on Sunday involves preaching and music. But is that the Bible's definition for church? Not at all. Some people see church as a symbol. Because we hear politicians talking about church and state. Church and state. So it means whatever is religious. Whatever religious thing you're into, that's what church is. You see how the problem with the word is just a difficult word. So what word should we use? I generally use the word assembly. Because everybody agrees what an assembly is. And all the different forms it can take. Or congregation. But I'll sometimes use the word church. But hopefully you here, when I use the word church, you know what I'm talking about. It's not these things that I've listed here. But it's an assembly of people. Big, small, whatever. And as Paul uses it, it's an assembly of people who are assembled to love God and one another, to serve God and serve one another, to pray and to do the things that godly people do. If we can picture that in our minds, the word church is perfectly fine. But again, church is such a loaded term that it's a difficult one to use. So, with all that, let's start 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're not going to go very far today. Now, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's going to be great for you to use. I'm using, I, I am so addicted to these. This is ESV, but um, cross, Crossway Publishers, they publish every book of the Bible in a paperback form like this. And it's really quality paper, great binding, and here's the beauty, wide margins and then a blank page. Every facing page is a blank page for notes, for insights, for thoughts. And I just love using these. So if the complete Jewish Bible did this, I'd be using that. But uh, what I'll have to do is interpolate a little bit. So let me give you an example. Start with verse 1. I'm going to read it straight out of the ESV. And then we're going to learn a little religious jargon uh, and then substitute better terms. So here's what it says. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth and those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's a very typical Christian rendering of the first three verses. The only thing is, is that when Paul wrote, in fact, all the writers of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, they never used religious jargon. They used the common vernacular of the day. They used common everyday words. So here are some words that appear here in the first half of chapter 1. For example, apostle, that's a religious word. But apostello was just a very basic Greek verb. It means to send on an official, an official business. It means an ambassador, an emissary. So let's use that word ambassador instead. Because everybody understands the word ambassador. But we tend to think apostles, oh, these were these, these really special guys. And they were special. But we need to understand their, their specialness in the context of each one and what they did. But the word apostle simply means an ambassador. Now the word Christ, notice I have a, a, an arrow instead of an equal sign. The word Christ, Christos, literally means anointed. But that doesn't help us much. But literally, that's what the word Christ means. Mashiach, anointed one. But in a Jewish mind, they would have taken it a step further because who was anointed? Prophets, priests, and kings. And when you spoke about the Messiah, the anointed one, king popped to the top. And they knew that King Messiah would also be a prophet and he would be a priest, but king, that was number one. So instead of saying Christ Jesus, say King Jesus, King Yeshua. That gives it the punch it's meant to have, a king. You know, a lot of people, I, I'll ask them, uh, term Jesus Christ, yes, I use that all the time. Okay, tell me about Jesus. They can tell you all about Jesus. Now tell me about Christ. And it's like, they don't know what to say. It's like it's his last name. It's this title. I'll say, what do you think Christ means? And they'll most of the time guess around, but uh, if they start using the term king, everybody knows what a king is. Everybody knows that. And Yeshua, the son of David, the king that even David called his Lord, that's who we're talking about. King Yeshua. Saints, that's a very religious word. In Roman Catholicism, you have to be voted into sainthood. But Paul uses the term saints for any holy person. And what does the word holy mean? The word holy, which is also the word sanctify, exact same word in Greek, same words in Hebrew, that means set apart, set apart people. If you have set yourself apart to love and serve God, you are a saint. But saint is too religious. It's a holy people. So we use the word holy. It means set apart. We're set apart to do God's will, not our own. Lord, when it's all capital letters, it's referring to God and his name, Yathevave, Adonai. But generally, it's used simply to mean master. In modern Hebrew, the word mister Mr. Smith is Adon, same word that gives us the word Adonai. Master Smith, Adon Smith, Mr. Smith. And, uh, but they're using it here in first century Greek as the word master. King Yeshua is my master. And many times I refer to Yeshua as the master because he is my master. 
Baptize, religious word, but it means to wash or immerse. So let's use the word wash or immerse. Preach means we tend to think the difference between preachers or teachers is preachers stand up and yell a lot and get real emotional and dramatic, and teachers sit and talk quietly and reasonably. That's not the difference. The only difference between a preacher and a teacher in in uh, Hebraic and in Greek thought, Greek language, was the subject. If you were one out, going out to share the evangel, the good news, you are an evangelist. And you would evangel the, the evangel. You would preach the preaching. You would good news the good news. But if you're teaching from the scriptures, if you're taking a passage like I'm doing, that's not called preaching. Different subject. This is called teaching. Has nothing to do with the tone of voice or how much gesticulation you do or how dramatic and sweaty you get. It has nothing to do with the difference. Subject matter is the only difference between the one and the other. That's it. Go down for a moment to uh, verse, I think it's 17. Yes. It says, For Messiah did not send me to immerse, but to preach the gospel. That is one word. Preach the gospel is one word. Wangalizo, one who takes the evangel, the wangelion, and proclaims it. To wangalizo means to proclaim the gospel, to good news, the good news. Okay? Preach uh, church, we already covered that. We're going to use the word community or assembly, and I may slip and use the word church, but you all know what I mean. Correct? We all together? All right. So let me read these three verses again, and this time put in words that make more sense to the common man. Paul, called by the will of God to be an ambassador of King Yeshua, and our brother Sosthenes, along with me, he's greeting you, to the assembly of God that is in Corinth, to those set apart in King Yeshua, called to be holy people, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our master, Yeshua the Messiah, both their master and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Master, King Yeshua, or Yeshua the Messiah. It just has more punch. It connects. It means more. Because this is how the Greeks would have read this. It wasn't religious talk. It was a very matter-of-fact, rubber-meets-the-road kind of conversation. So now let's just quickly, in the few minutes we have left, go through about the the first half of the chapter. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in King Yeshua. That in every way you are enriched in him, in all logos and all gnosis. We're going to learn a little Greek this morning. And I want you to learn how to pronounce Greek letters. That word number one is the word logos. So where we get the word ology at the end of words, psychology, biology, whatever ology it is, comes from the word about the thing. It means a word. Whoa, got away from me there. Just a second. There we are. That first letter is a, a lambda. It has an L sound. That middle letter is a gamma. It looks like a Y. It's not a Y. It's a G sound. G. Logos, right? Not too difficult. 
And he puts these two together. You must have the word and you must have the knowledge, gnosis. These go together. These are a package deal. Logos and gnosis. We get that word gnosis where we get Gnosticism, which is a a belief that's based strictly on, on thinking and thought, but had no faith attached to it. God, God wants us to be rich in his word, the scriptures, and also in the knowledge. We want to get in the word and then understand it and apply it. We want to have these two things together. We have the word, we want to live it, we want to know it. So we have a, a gamma, and then the next, looks like a V, is actually an N sound, the letter nu. And this letter here, oops, this letter, this third letter is an omega. It's the last letter of the uh, uh, Greek alphabet. It has an O sound always. And then this is cis. This letter and this letter are the same letter. Sigma. They have an S sound. When sigma appears at the end of a word, it changes to like our modern S. So GN gives the word N like an anome. Gnosis. Gnosis. Not gnosis, just gnosis. And then he says, even as the testimony about Messiah was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. That word gift is the word charisma. Charisma, this P-shaped letter, it looks like a P, it's an R, it's a row. It actually is an R sound. This one here is a moo. Now, that's easy to remember. It doesn't look like an M, but it looks like a cow's udder with the dangly bits on it. And so when you see that, think of an udder on a cow. Cows go moo, and so this is an M sound. Charisma. Charisma. The X has a ch sound. Charisma. This is where we get the word charismatic. And it has to do with the gifts. But the word charisma means gift. And it comes from the word charis, which means grace. We almost named our daughter charis. Beautiful name. means grace. Because any gift you get is because someone's being gracious, right? So charisma is a charis. It's a gracious thing. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our master, King Yeshua. Folks, I'm just giving you my own opinion. But I just sense, and I know every generation from the days of Yeshua has sensed they're in the last days. And maybe we're not. But I sense that we are. But I think we're all supposed to sense that we are, no matter what generation you're in. Because if we all live as if he's right around the corner, it's going to change the way we live. But if you think he's not coming back for another hundred or thousand years, that's going to change the way you live. And I know this, that whether I live to see his coming or I die first, it's all the same thing. I go from this way of living to being face-to-face with him. And as I said before, if you're not ready to die today, you're not ready for him to come today. 
You're not ready to die today. You're not ready for him to come today. Because in either case, whether you die or he arrives first, everything changes. Everything changes. And you have to be ready for that change. So, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our master, King Yeshua. God is faithful, by whom you are all called into fellowship. Now, word number four is the word for fellowship. It's the word koinonia. And the reason I'm, I'm pointing that out is that there's an important uh, part of this. I think we can recognize all these letters. That's the N sound. The, I'm sorry, let me erase that. That fourth letter is the new, the N sound, right there. That's the omega, the O sound. There's another N sound there, I-A, or I-Oda Alpha. Koinonia. I remember as kids, Brian and I went to the Baptist summer camp called Camp Koinonia. But the reason I'm pointing this out to you is the first four letters are what give us our word koine. Because the Greek in which Paul wrote, in which the New Testament scriptures are recorded, is koine Greek. In other words, there's a history to this. Before Alexander the Great, every one of these groups around Europe spoke their own dialect and own languages. But God, believe it or not, had his hand on Alexander the Great's life. And Alexander the Great has prophesied the book of Daniel. And Alexander, with incredibly speed and effectiveness, conquered the entire landmass of Europe. And he imposed this language as the common language for all the countries. They all had to learn Koine Greek. And what God was doing, he's preparing the entire known world of that time to receive this. And also, during this time, God inspired the, uh, the king of Alexandria, Egypt, where Alexander is buried, therefore its name Alexandria, where they spoke Koine Greek. The king of Alexandria was inspired to have the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. And so by the time Yeshua comes and the time Paul begins writing, the whole world can read the Bible. God set the stage that way in his power, in his wisdom. So that word koine is the root of the word koinonia, fellowship. When we speak the same language can communicate, we can have fellowship. But if we can't speak the same language, we can't communicate, what kind of fellowship can we have? So... Let's go on. Called into the fellowship of his son, King Yeshua, our master. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our master, Yeshua, the Messiah, that all of you agree that there be no schisms. That's the word number five. Schisma. There's our our mu right there. Uh, Schisma. That's where you get the word schism, division. Schism or division. And Paul prays that there be no divisions. There's a, the antidotes to schisms and divisions are number one, humility. 
And number two, truth. You find schism used in the Gospels a number of times. You know who causes it? Yeshua. <laughs> Yeshua causes it. And so many times he would, he would say something, and then some of the Jewish people would say, yeah, that's true. And others say, oh, it's not. There'd be, a, there'd be a schism. The sword of the Spirit is the word of truth. That's the scriptures. So wherever there's truth, there's division. Wherever there's falsehood, there's division. Because the truth has a way of dividing itself from falsehood. Falsehood is a way of dividing itself from truth. But if there's humility and commitment to truth, divisions are healed. Schisms are healed. But those are two big ifs. Some people just can't humble themselves no matter what. And some people are going to cling to darkness instead of light no matter what. I'm glad to be in a community where people are committed to truth and they're humble people who submit to one another. And uh, you know what? In all the years of Beth the Coon, almost 25 now, there's never been a schism. There have been some individuals who floated in, tried to cause one, but then they kind of floated out with encouragement. And uh, we've never had a schism. I don't foresee one as long as you people stay the course, be who you are. And there be no divisions, no schismas among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, Chloe is another group in Corinth who had a church in her home, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that would be Peter. And then there's a super spiritual ones. I follow Christ. Now you'd think at first blush, group number four was the best. But what they're really doing is saying this, I follow Jesus. I only follow Jesus. I don't follow Paul or Peter or Apollos or any of these others. Is there nothing compared to Yeshua? And I follow him. That's probably as much or more divisive than the other three. Of course we follow Yeshua. But Yeshua sends us messengers. He sent Paul. He sent Apollos. He sent Peter. They're all in the same team. And we can be tempted to divide. Well, I follow Torah resources teaching. Well, I follow 119 teachings. Well, I follow Grant's teachings. Well, I follow... Guys, we're all on the same page. We may not agree on everything, but we're all pulling the same direction. And it's petty to divide and say, well, this group is better than that group. That teacher is better than that teacher. If they're teaching truth, even with some mistakes and goofs, you eat the meat, spit up the bones, and you get nourished, and praise God that there's somebody there who's representing him and, and teaching his word. And so this is exactly what, what Paul says in verse 13. Is Messiah divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or are you immersed in the name of Paul? I thank God that I immerse none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And remember, Crispus was mentioned back in, in uh, Acts chapter 18. So that no one may say that you are immersed in my name. And then he happened to think, <laughs> he remembered in verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I immersed anyone else. Verse 17, for Messiah did not send me to immerse 
but to wangalizo, one word. And that means proclaim, proclaim what? Good news. Proclaim good news. Wangaliza. When you find two gammas together, like here, it has an NG sound. Wangalizo. And that's the fanciest Z you'll ever see in your life right there. That's what it looks like. Zeta. Wangalizo. That's where we get the word wangelion. Wangelion, which means good news. That's where we get our English word evangel. And when you proclaim the good news, that's called evangelizing. But there's another smaller Greek word at the root of this. And it's the word that comes from this right here in the middle. Angel or angelos. Like in Los Angeles. What does Los Angeles mean? You want to say the angels, right? Half right. It means messenger. It is also where we get the word angel. But the word angel means messenger. And when you see an angel in scriptures, you have to ask, in Hebrew it's malach, and in Greek it's angelos, but they mean the same thing, it means a messenger. Sometimes that messenger is a human being. Sometimes that messenger is an angelic being. Sometimes that messenger is God himself. You must always look at the context to understand, try to get who is the messenger. But it's the same word. If they have a message from God, they are an angelos. When you take the good news, that's the wangelion. You're the messenger of good news. And when you evangelize, that's wangelizo. You're proclaiming as a messenger the good news from God. See how that fits together? In English, you don't see the connections. But in Greek, they're all right there. They're so very obvious. So let's finish up. Verse 17, For Messiah did not send me to immerse, but to proclaim the good news, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That deserves a teaching all on its own. The cross of Messiah is not a T-shape. The T-shape is a symbol that represents it. But too many people treat the T-shape with veneration, not understanding the power that it represents. The cross is a principle by which we live. I don't care if I never see another T-shaped cross. But the power of the cross is something we must live with every moment of every day and be constantly aware of. The power of the cross is this, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. It's saying no to me and yes to you, yes to God. I die to myself and what I want, because what I want means nothing. What does God want? What do you need? It means loving God with all my heart, my soul, my strength, and loving you as myself. And I'm not in the formula. That is the power of the cross. And we're taught.
told by our master, we're going to follow him. We must deny who? Ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. That's the power of the cross. When you see the word cross in scripture, don't think of a T-shape. Think of two things. Think of what Yeshua did on that cross. He said no to himself and yes to you. I then think of what the power of the cross is in your life, saying no to yourself and yes to God and to one another. If we live according to the power of the cross, the world's going to change like that. But when we have believers who wear crosses around their necks, but they're divisive and they're bitter and they're pulling for their own way, that cross around their neck becomes a mockery. I'm not a person who likes symbols all that much. I don't wear T-shirts with advertisements on them and words. It's okay if you do. That's up to you. It's just the same with me. I don't like symbols. And if I display the cross, some people see it in my life, not because I have it hanging from my ear or wear it on my neck or whatever. Not there's anything wrong with that. If it helps you remember the power of the cross, then by all means wear a cross. I'm not against that. Just don't let it be a substitute for the power of the cross in your life. Never, never, God forbid, let that happen. Display the cross by the way you live, by dying to self. I have some homework for you. I want you to continue reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. And in verse 4, there's a question. Paul says this, For when one says, I am of Paul, another I am of Paulos. Now get this, he says, are you not being merely human? Isn't that an odd question? We're human beings, right? But if you're merely a human being, you're not ready to serve God. If you think like a mere human being, you're not going to know God's will. Now the answer to this question is not found after verse 4, it's found before verse 4, in the chapter and a half before. So this is why I want you to really study closely uh, from the rest of chapter 1, the rest, other half of chapter 1, all through 2, and on down to verse 4. And I want you to be able to answer that question next week. What does it mean to be merely human? And why is that a problem? What are we supposed to be? And Paul describes three kinds of people. So study what those three kinds are. More importantly, which one are you? Which one are you? Which one should you be? I love this portion of scripture. It is a constant reminder to me to up my game. So, oh, I've really gone over time. I'm sorry. But is there a burning question someone has that they just have to ask right now or they're just going to be miserable the rest of the week? Okay, all right. See, that's the principle of cross. I know some of you do. You're going to say no to yourself so other people don't have to sit here any longer. All right, so let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the wonder of your word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for taking this man who was your enemy and then making an example of what we're to be. Thank you for the letters he wrote. Thank you for his grace to endure so much pain and so much against himself because he loved you with a burning love that consumed his being. 
Lord, help us to be the same way. Give us grace and wisdom as we look into your word this week. And I pray that our Sabbaths next week would be special, that they have a holy glow to them as we meet as families. And we praise you and thank you for the Shabbat that we've enjoyed. And I ask your blessing also upon Riverside Christian Missionary Alliance Church, that as we leave this building today, not to return, that you'd bless them and guide them in your steps. I ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.